The Lord be with you. You know what people love about Scripture? The names of places they can't pronounce. People are like, oh, this passage has like five, six, seven names of places. I've never heard of this as a passage I'm excited for. And the reason why they're excited about it is because they know God put those places in that passage for a reason, and they're so excited to find out what that reason is. So today in our reading of Acts, you heard a bunch of names of places you may not have heard of. But I'm here to tell you those places matter, and not only do they matter, they actually mean something to you already. You just don't even know it yet. So let's pull up a map. This is uh, Paul's journey that we hear about today. It says that he sets out from his journey from a place called Troas, which you're like, I've never heard of Troas. That's okay. I'm willing to bet, though, you've heard of Troy. Raise your hands. Who's heard of Troy? Hey, almost everyone, the Trojan War. Yeah, here's a map of the Trojan War. So Troas is the region around Troy that's there on the northwest tip of what is today Turkey. In the ancient world, that was Asia. And you'll notice Thrace is Europe. And there's this thin strip of water between it where you can cross between it called the Hellespont. Now, the Trojans were at war with folks, and even though you might not be able to say it off the top of my head, if I told you the Trojans were at war with the Greeks, you'd go, oh yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah, and they built like a horse, and they hid inside of it, and then they snuck in the walls, and you'd be like, oh yeah, and there's this guy named Achilles, he got shot in the heel. These names mean something to you, yes? Yeah, okay, great. So, uh, you'll see when the Greeks went to Troy in the Trojan War, which was probably a thousand years, maybe 1,200 years before Jesus, they sailed just straight across. But I'm also willing to bet you've heard of a guy named Odysseus. Yeah? So Odysseus was like, I'll just sail home back to Greece after fighting in Troy for 10 years. Turns out he just tried to sail across. He got lost for 10 years trying to get home. And so after this, people are like, you know, rather than sail back and forth, Let's go around north along the land in what is today Thrace. Or back then it was Thrace. Actually, today it's also part of Turkey um, and Greece. So let's go to our next map. Because when Paul goes from Troy into Greece, he goes along that northern route along Thrace, past an island called Samothrace, a place called Neapolis, until he gets to Macedonia. And you may think, oh, Macedonia doesn't mean anything to you, but has anyone heard of Philip of Macedon? I see a few nods. You've heard of his son. You've heard of his son. His son is Alexander the Great. Yeah? You've heard of Alexander the Great? Great. Excellent. So Alexander the Great is a Greek guy from Macedon, and he's got it in his head. He's going to fight the second Trojan War. And so he goes across the Hellespont, along the same route, but in reverse, that Paul goes. And he ends up in Troy, and just outside of Troy, he fights a major battle against the Persian Empire, and, and Alexander the Great thinks of himself as the second Achilles. He is actually a descendant of Achilles who fought at the Trojan War, and he sleeps with a copy of the Iliad, that first epic literature in our Western tradition that we have. He sleeps with that at night, because that's his inspiration for who he wants to be, 
But the other reason he's going to invade not just Troy, but you can see all of that part of Asia up into India, is out of revenge. He is avenging the Greeks because the Persians, a couple centuries earlier, had come and invaded Greece. And you know what route they took? Let's go to the next slide. The route they take, you can see, hopefully you're getting used to this map at this point. You can see those lines that are going from that southwest tip of Turkey along Thrace into Macedonia and down into Greece. To say this route that Paul takes is the same route that the Persians take. But let me tell you what, when the Persians came along this route, the Greeks were not into it. They were like, no, we do not want you Persians. And in fact, there was a famous battle at Thermopylae where 300 Spartans fought off the Persians. They turned it into a crazy movie about 10, 15 years ago. Anyone see this movie? Just a handful of people. Okay, apparently chiseled abs and graphic violence is not the like, main movie demographic at Faith Lutheran Church. That's okay. But I, I bet you saw the previews for it, right? There, where there's like a Persian envoy being like, you have to submit to Persia. And the Spartans are like, never. And the Persian envoy goes, this is madness. And the Spartans go, this is Sparta. And then they kick the guy and he falls into a pit that's just like a giant pit in the middle of Sparta for some reason. I don't know. You probably saw those previews, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To say, right, 2,500 years later, we are literally making blockbuster movies about how the people in Greece and the people in Asia hate each other and they fight each other constantly and no one in Greece is going to let someone from Asia come and tell them what to do or how to think or how to live or how to believe or anything like that. And not only 2,500 years later are we talking about this, not only was the first work of literature written about this conflict between Greece and Asia, but the very first history, the invention of history, happened to explain why Greece and Asia were always at war. It was by a man named Herodotus. His book is literally called The Histories. It's the first time someone writes a history, and he says at the beginning, I'm writing this book to say, why in the world is Greece at war with these people in Asia? The definitive word of the world is Greece and Asia are enemies and they will never get along. But the word of God comes to Paul in a vision. Paul, who is a man from Asia, who is in Troy, and in his vision, God says, as a Macedonian, come over to Macedonia and help us. From Paul's perspective, this is madness. Or we might say, this is Macedonia. Nah, all right, you know, whatever. If I do the kick, maybe it'll, yeah. To say, okay, the word of the world has said this is not going to go well. But Paul is faithful to God's word, and Paul clings to it, and he goes over to Macedonia from Troy. And he's able to do that because actually in this moment in history, Asia, Asia Minor, and Greece are at peace. But it's not like a kumbaya, we all love each other kind of peace. It's the kind of peace that happens because uh, the two people are too injured and weak and they can't fight each other anymore. 
It's the kind of peace that comes from having uh, a boot standing on your neck so you can't fight. And it's not so much a boot, it's a sandal. It's a Roman sandal. Rome has come and it's conquered Greece and it's conquered this part of Asia. And so now people no longer fight each other because they don't have any weapons. This is the kind of peace that Rome brings. It's called the Pax Romana. Pax is a Latin word for peace. And there's a man in Britain, Calgacus. He's a, a Celtic Briton. And when Rome comes and conquers the British Isles and pacifies his people, Calgacus says, Rome makes a desert and calls it peace. His island is at peace because everyone's dead. When Paul crosses over to Macedonia, to this Roman colonized city looking for converts, what he finds is a desert, a spiritual desert. And part of the reason Paul finds a desert is because he goes looking for converts. He looks, goes looking to proselytize by holding on to the ways of this world. The ways of this world say, hey, you want to go conquer a territory? What you got to do is take on the strongest people there, the most powerful people there, and when you defeat them, you'll get all that territory, right? You, you defeat the king, you get his kingdom. You defeat the general, you get his army. Or in conversion terms, right, if you can, if you can convert the, the man, the head of the household, then you'll get his whole family too. And so this is where Paul starts doesn't say it explicitly, but from what he does in Athens, another Greek city, the bets are he's going to start off in the marketplace. He's going to go around where all the men are doing business, where they're talking philosophy, and he's going to try to talk to all the influential people in the city and see who he can get to listen about Jesus. But it says in our reading today that they have no success. They do this for days, and they have nothing to show for it. He goes looking for the most powerful men in the city, and he finds a desert. So then Paul does what he has done often in Asia, which is to go to synagogues, to say, well, maybe the Jewish people in this town will be interested. Maybe I can convince the rabbi, and, and the whole synagogue will convert. Except this is such a thoroughly Greek and Roman city, on the Sabbath he can't find a synagogue. He goes looking for a synagogue and he finds a desert. But Jewish people have had a long history of being scattered around the world. And when they are in a place where they can't afford to build a synagogue or there's not enough of them to build a synagogue, what they often do is go down by the side of a river. Because the idea is you need 10 Jewish men together to form what's called a minion. And a minion is the number of men you need to have a worship service. And so... It's sort of said, in every city, go down by the banks of the river on the Sabbath, and hopefully you will find ten men. And so Paul goes down by the river to a place of prayer, and what he's looking for is ten men, but he finds a desert, at least when it comes to men. Because while there are no men there, there are women. There are women who've gathered at this place to pray to God on the Sabbath. But from the world's perspective, ah, women are useless, right? They're not in charge of anything. They're not the influencers. They're not the popular kids. And so you're not going to win a war of hearts and minds by convincing the women, but that's what the word of the world says. The word of God said to Paul, go and preach, and 
Paul is faithful to God's word, and so he preaches to these women. And there, those women begin to listen. Jesus says in our gospel today, those who love me keep my word, and my Father loves them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. There is a woman by the banks of that river, a woman by the name of Lydia, and it says that she is a worshiper of God. She is someone who loves God even before Paul begins to preach. And so when she hears this word of Jesus proclaimed, she keeps it close to her heart. She clings to it. And because she clings to Christ's word, God and Jesus make a home with her. Lydia is not a king. She's not a general. She's not a man like Paul had in his vision. She's not even a local Macedonian. It says that she comes from Theratia, which is actually back in Asia. But for all the things that she is not, Lydia is the first person in Europe to become a believer of Jesus. She's the very first person in Europe to become a follower of Jesus. And not only that, but Lydia is a businesswoman. It says she's a dealer in purple dye, which is very expensive, so presumably she is a wealthy businesswoman. And it also says that she is the head of her household, which likely means that her husband or her father died and left her in charge. And so when Lydia decides that she is going to follow Jesus, that she is going to be baptized, she, as the head of her household, has everyone else baptized. Because in the ancient world, you followed Jesus as a whole family. If the head of your household says, okay, I'm following Jesus, it means everyone's following Jesus, everyone's getting baptized. Kids, servants, doesn't matter. We're all doing this together. And what that means is not only Lydia, the first person in Europe to follow Jesus, Lydia's household becomes the first church in Europe. Lydia's house is the first European congregation. And as the president of that first congregation in Europe, Lydia says to Paul, come, come stay with me. She gives Paul an invitation. Maybe invitation's too weak a word, because the scripture tells us that then she prevailed upon us, the us being Paul, and presumably the writer of the book of Acts, who is Luke, the writer of the gospel according to Luke, it says she prevailed upon us. Why would she have to prevail upon them to come and stay with her? Well, one, she's a woman, and they're men, and they just met randomly at the side of the river, and it's kind of a strange thing for a, a presumably single woman to start inviting strange men over to the house. That could be scandalous. But also, right, she's now become a Macedonian. He's an Asian, and we know there's all sorts of conflict between these two people. There's all sorts of reasons why Paul would say, you know what? Probably for propriety's sake, I should not accept your invitation. But it says she prevails upon them. And in Greek, the word that's translated prevail is even stronger. It's parabiazdomai. There it is. If parabiazdomai is too hard to keep in your head, you can see it there. And literally, the definition of parabiazdomai is to force, to constrain, to compel, to do violence. The only force that is used 
to bring the church to Europe is the force of breaking down Paul's hesitancy to accept hospitality from this strange woman. It is the force to break down the word of the world which says, no, you are from Macedonia, I am from Asia, you are a woman, I am a man, we don't get along. It is the force of the word of God that says, no, in Christ we are one, we are one family, we are siblings in Christ, and so Lydia says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay with me. For centuries, kings and generals had sought to expand empires from Europe to Asia or Asia to Europe across that Hellespont only using armies. And they had never succeeded in a lasting peace. But the kingdom of God is spread across that same narrow body of water, across those same fighting cultures with a simple act of hospitality. There are divisions in our world that seem so vast, seem so deep that they can never be overcome. Divisions in our country, cultural divisions between urban and rural, between racial groups. There are divisions in our personal lives, divisions within our families, between neighbors, between old friends who no longer speak to each other. And we think, how can these ever be healed? And the world tells us if you want peace in the midst of these divisions, what you got to do is become stronger than the other person. You got to overwhelm them with your force until they submit to you or you submit to them and one person stands victorious and that is how peace comes. But Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives to you. For the world tries to give us peace with generals, commanding soldiers and armies, demanding submission. But if we look at how Jesus brings peace to this place of conflict in the world, it is with strangers meeting on the literal fringes of society who gather together in prayer, who listen to one another, who share the sacraments, who extend an invitation of hospitality to someone who does not expect it, and through receiving an invitation of hospitality that is unexpected. Rome brings peace by making the world a desert. Jesus brings peace by making the world a desert. It's silly and corny, I know, but it's true. God, throughout all of Scripture, uses ordinary people sharing ordinary food to bring forth extraordinary transformation. When we share bread, when we break bread with others in the name of Christ, Jesus is present in that moment, bringing his peace, and in that moment, we realize that we are Christ's body. So this day, if you want to do something truly radical, if you look at the world with all its brokenness and say, what could I do to make a difference? Follow the words of St. Lydia. Find someone who you don't know, 
or who seems different from you or whom you would never expect to get along with and invite them over for dinner. You can start right here in this congregation. It doesn't matter how long you've been attending here. I bet there's someone in this room where you're like, I don't really know that person. I don't know if we'd get along. What if you were faithful to God's word? What if you extended an act of invitation, an act of hospitality? Come, have dinner with me. Let's go out for lunch after worship. And if you're like one of these people who receives an act of hospitality, man, I don't know you. You think I'm coming over to your house. Maybe say, can I bring a friend? But then, like Paul, say yes. Because just like Lydia's invitation to Paul, this invitation might change the world. It might change your life. At the very least, you will know someone better who you didn't know before, and that is the seed of the kingdom of God. The world will tell you, ah, that won't make a difference. But when Paul clung to the words of this world, he found only division. But when he clung to the word of Christ, he found invitation. When Paul clung to the words of this world, he found only a desert. But when he clung to the word of Christ, he found desert. When Paul clung to the words of this world, he found rejection. But when Paul clung to the words of Christ, he found a home already waiting for him in a place that he would never have expected a home where he could share the peace of Christ. May we too cling to Christ's words. May we share Lydia's invitation and together share the peace of Jesus that only he can give. Amen.